A few weeks ago, I read an online article from a pastor about why he left his church. And not just why he left his church, but why he left the ministry altogether. That's not unusual these days. We're living in what some have called the great pastor resignation. He wrote, I have become part of what is known as the great pastor resignation that came in the wake of the pandemic. Barna did a national survey of pastors and as of March 2022, 42% of pastors considered quitting. The reasons for this are myriad, but the top five reasons given are as follows. First, the immense stress of the job, 56%. Second, I feel lonely and isolated, 43%. Third, current political divisions, 38%. Fourth, I'm unhappy with the effect this role has had on my family, 29%. Fifth, I'm not optimistic about the future of my church, 29%. He goes on to say, as an example, for most of my tenure, we had around 1,000 members. Of those 1,000, only about 50% would attend on a regular basis. Out of those 500, I really got to know about 300 people beyond name recognition. What this means is I know their stories, their history the intimate details of their lives. Sometimes this happened because they were in crisis. Sometimes I learned these things while performing functions for them like funerals, weddings, baptisms. Sometimes this happened because we were friends. Irrespective of how I learned their story, I carry that history wherever I go. Whenever I see them, they know that I know intimate details about their lives, details that are rarely shared with others. And what you don't realize is that over time, the accumulation of all that knowledge starts to weigh you down. Your mind is a repository for all sorts of secrets. And if you're human, you feel sympathy and empathy for their suffering. It's a privilege to be given a window into these very private aspects of people's lives. But the responsibility that comes with that privilege can often be overwhelming in ways that those on the outside of the pastorate cannot fully comprehend. He went on to talk about the unrealistic expectations that are often hoisted upon pastors in the modern church. He said, although the requirements differ from denomination to denomination, to become a pastor in my denomination, you have to possess a bachelor's degree, and then you have to go to seminary and receive a master's of divinity. For many professions, a master's is maybe one or a one or two year program. The MDiv takes a minimum of three years. On top of this, you have to take a variety of professional exams, better known as ordination exams, and go through a series of internships in churches and hospitals. And when you come out on the other side, the average salary is around $55,000, which is barely enough to live on and not nearly enough to pay back student loans. On top of this, there's seven areas where a pastor is expected to be proficient. One, professional speaker. Two, CEO. Three, counselor. Four, fundraiser. Five, human resources director. Six, master of ceremonies. Seven, pillar of virtue. In a normal company, you would have a different person doing most of these jobs, sometimes multiple people. Nobody is capable of being proficient at all of these skills. And yet, pastors are expected to do all of these things and to do them well for $55,000 a year. He went into a lot more detail, but he resigned. His last Sunday was the last Sunday of July. And now he's going on to some other kind of nonprofit work that he can more easily manage. And admittedly, this pastor comes from a denominational tradition very different than ours, and his theology is a bit different than what we would embrace. But nevertheless, after completing 35 years of pastoral ministry myself this week, When I read the article, I could relate to a number of his points. And to be perfectly honest, I have walked through seasons of discouragement that have taken me to the darkest corners imaginable. And yet there's 
nothing that I would rather do to this day than what I'm doing right now. This is not my resignation sermon. I think most people would talk about that kind of approach to ministry and label it as burnout. I wouldn't disagree. Burnout tends to come most quickly, at least in my experience, when I emphasize expectations that God does not or when I fail to have a biblically defined definition of what my role and my responsibility is And that's often fueled by voices, loud voices of expectation around me. Burnout happens when I try to take on more than God asks, expect the ministry to provide what God has not promised. When I immerse myself in activities and even leisure that do not replenish the soul. When I allow poor responses to others and from others to dominate my mind and my mouth, burnout particularly comes after extended seasons of neglect of personal prayer and intake of the scripture. And even this last can be very challenging because prayer and meditating on the scripture doesn't always yield the most joy. It can often feel cold And even for a pastor, when he reads the Bible, it doesn't always thrill his heart. I can still leave my quiet time feeling quite empty. If I consider what this former pastor wrote and what the emphasis of my thinking has been in my worst seasons, there is a thread that pierces through all of it. And it is a lack of confidence. I don't know the particular pastor that wrote the article. I can only go off of what he wrote and I do know a number of my own experiences. But burnout tends to come when we have less confidence, particularly when our confidence is misplaced. When it's more about what we are expected to do or think we are expected to do and less about what God has promised to do and what it looks like to entrust ourselves to those promises. And I know that entrusting ourselves to the promises of God does not mean that we're going to end up lazy. It doesn't allow us to merely follow our feelings. Trusting God's promises doesn't make us less focused. It doesn't mean that we have to be undisciplined in our daily life. But there is a kind of rest that comes when our heart is actually trusting the promises of God. A biblically-minded rest in God, it does breed confidence, but it breeds confidence in God. And confidence in God is most often heard in how someone prays, especially when difficult interpersonal issues are boiling. Prayer, if you listen to your own prayers carefully, Prayer often expresses your own expectations. And our expectations reveal a lot about our theology. Our expectations reveal a lot about what we actually believe is happening in any given situation. And a confident, biblically defined expectation of God expressed in personal prayer That's actually what we find in the two verses that we're looking at today. 2 Thessalonians 3, 4, and 5 is an expression of confident prayer from a shepherd for his flock. I think I can confidently say that about this passage because this is the Apostle Paul who invested significant amount of time into the lives of these, these people in Thessalonica and he loved them dearly. And he didn't get to spend as much time as he would have liked with them, but he saw them come to faith and he watched them begin to grow. He saw them suffer and he is desperate to see them continue in the faith. And now you see how he's going to pray for them. Last week, we looked at how to pray for the shepherds. This week, you see the tables turn and here's how the shepherd is praying for the flock. 
So that's what we're going to look at, the dynamics of confident, biblically driven pastoral prayer for a congregation. This is how the elders of this church are to pray for this flock. This is how shepherds anywhere with any congregation is to pray. And what's interesting is Paul must have thought that the church needed to hear how he was praying for them. It's almost as if he's setting their expectations for his ministry by talking to them about how he's praying for them. Here's what he expects. Here's the confidence that he has in regard to this church. So here we're going to see the dynamics that comprise confident, biblically driven prayer from a shepherd for the flock. Here's the first. A shepherd is to pray with confidence in God's faithfulness to the flock. This is so important. Pray with confidence in God's faithfulness to the flock. Look at the very first part of verse 4. It says, but we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. Now, I've intentionally added the word but. I've added it there because it's actually in the Greek text. Now, the New American Standard Bible does not translate it. It's trying to smooth out the English reading from one section to the next. The English Standard Version translates the word and there. That's also the Legacy Standard Bible. It's a new translation I've been reading recently. And it, it translates that little conjunction day as and, and it keeps it there. And we need to keep it there. And there's a reason. That small Greek con conjunction actually connects this statement, this sentence. We have confidence in the Lord. It connects it to what came before. So it's a, it's a form of a mild contrast. In contrast to the evil one that Paul talked about last week in, in verse number three. In contrast to the evil one for whom you need divine protection and in contrast to all the perverse and evil men who do not have faith from whom Paul needs to be delivered and in light of a truth, a very important truth that's given in verse three. In light of this truth that you see at the beginning of verse three, what is it? The Lord is what? Faithful. In light of that, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. What is he saying? Because of God's faithfulness, I have confidence in the Lord for you. And this is the language of prayer because how does he express confidence in the Lord? My confidence in the Lord is expressed to the Lord. So we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. Now, listen, the, the church in Thessalonica was a great church. They were a wonderful congregation to be a part of. They were fervent in their repentance from idolatry. We read that in the first letter. They were eager in their expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. They were loud in their testimony of faith in Jesus. They were resilient in their love and affection for Paul and the gospel that he preached. <laughs> this would be a far cry from the church that Paul is actually in when he writes this letter. You know where he is when he's writing the letter of 2 Thessalonians? He's in Corinth. Now, I won't take you through the three years that we spent in the letter of 1 Corinthians, but if you remember, if you've read through 1 Corinthians, you know that's a troubled church. It's a troubled church. They had a bunch of competitive people, belittling people, jealous people, people always looking for ways to accommodate the culture within their theology. You see them always trying to apply an accommodated theology and force others to do it also. They were always seeking some kind of spiritual buzz that was outside of the gospel, outside of the scripture. They were always enamored with looking more spiritual than they really were. Created massive problems in their church. It created great deep grief for the apostle Paul. So I think we could say, well, it's easy to be thankful and have confidence in the Lord for the church in Thessalonica. He must have, be having a bad moment in Corinth. And he's just thinking back on all the good days he used to have in Thessalonica. No, when you keep reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, when we get into this next week, he's about to drop the hammer. 
He's about to address some very important and very hard issues with people he likely knew by name and they certainly know by name and they're about to be addressed in the open church. And he still has confidence about this church. But he's not confident in them, is he? He's not. He doesn't even say that. My confidence is where? In the Lord concerning you. My confidence is in the Lord. In the Lord who, according to verse 3, is always faithful. Now, I told you I didn't have time last week to dive into that, so we will this week. But just, just quickly, the Lord is faithful. If you stop to think about how the Lord is faithful and what the Bible says the Lord is faithful in, if you just walk through a few passages, you would begin to see why the Apostle Paul is actually confident in the Lord about them. What is God faithful to do? Well, let me just give you a few ideas, and they're not on the screen, so just you have to actually listen for this. I'm just going to run through them quickly and, and throw out a, a couple of verses. So you write fast or listen fast, something like that. What, what is God faithful to do? Well, he, we know that he's faithful to complete our salvation. He's faithful to complete our salvation. He said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What does that mean? He called you, he'll complete you. Or Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering. Why should we hold fast the confession? Because he who promised is faithful. God is going to finish our salvation. He's promised and he's faithful. God is also faithful to provide endurance to resist temptation, isn't he? He is faithful to provide endurance to resist temptation. Again, we quoted it last week. It's worth quoting every week actually 1 Corinthians 10 13 no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it he will provide endurance to resist temptation all of it also, God is faithful to keep his promises. He's faithful to keep his promises. Just one example here out of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, verse 11. You remember Sarah from the Old Testament, Abraham's wife? Hebrews 11, 11 says, By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. He made a promise. She trusted the promise and it came about because God's going to keep his promise. God is also to, faithful to preserve Christians who suffer. It doesn't matter what the suffering is, illness, it could be suffering from the outside, the inside. Christians who suffer, God is faithful to provide for them. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, listen to this passage, it's probably one of my favorites to think about how God preserves his people. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Think about what that would mean. So that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us he on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us I mean how many ways can you say God is faithful when we were ready to die not just ready to die we wanted to die we realized God was faithful in that and he was telling us, don't trust yourself. Trust me. Set your hope on me. God is faithful to preserve Christians who suffer. 1 Peter 4.19, those who suffer according to the will of God. There's a lot that could be said in that statement. 
those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You remember another verse that you probably know very well gives us another way that God is faithful. He's faithful to cleanse a repentant sinner from sin, isn't he? God is faithful to cleanse a repentant sinner of all of the effects of his sin. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, what's the next phrase? He is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now think through that. If you know just those things, and I've just given you a sampling of the faithfulness of God. If you just knew those things about God's faithfulness, that he's the one who will bring his people into salvation. He'll never let temptation overwhelm you. He will bring you to the end of your salvation complete. He will help you when you suffer. He'll preserve you. He won't allow your sin to overwhelm you. You understand why Paul could say, I, I'm confident in the Lord about you. Paul isn't there. He doesn't know the day to day. He's only heard reports. But he's absolutely persuaded in the Lord about them. To say that God is faithful is to say that everything he does, everything he allows, think of this, is actually an expression of his faithfulness. Really? Mm-hmm. Everything he does, everything he says, anything he allows is just the platform to express his faithfulness. You remember Israel in the Old Testament? They were encouraged many times to set up these monuments. Monuments that would last from generation to generation so that when one generation came back and says, why do we do this? Why do we say this? Why do we follow this way? What, what's the point of this? They could look back and they could look at that monument and it would remind them of God's faithfulness to that nation in the past. I do think it is worth your time to maybe take a sheet of paper and on a regular basis as you're reading through the Bible, record what God promises, what God says he will do and keep it somewhere with you close at hand for when you're praying and especially when you're struggling that you could pull it up and begin to read again of the faithfulness of God that you set up some kind of monument as it were to remind you over and over again that God indeed is faithful just keep a list near you he's going to be faithful to you and by the way that means he's also faithful to anyone and everyone around you who's in Christ. He's going to be faithful to that husband who says he knows the Lord and loves the Lord but's walking in sin. He'll be faithful to complete him. Those children who seem to be prodigal-like, he's faithful to complete them too. That wife who's gotten so discouraged she's not sure that she wants to continue, yes, he is faithful to her too. That friend who keeps coming over and over and over with the same besetting sins, is God faithful to that friend? Of course. And you know, Paul could have complained in prayer. You know what that is, don't you? Have you ever done that? Have you ever complained to the Lord in prayer? You know, you've worried out loud to God. You've expressed your frustrations to God in prayer. Well, that's very biblical, by the way. It's very biblical. You remember we started our service a few weeks ago. We marched through the Psalms together just as we opened. We read Psalm 142. In Psalm 142 it says, I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint to the Lord. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path in the way where I walk. They have hidden a trap for me. 
Look to the right and see, for there's no one who regards me. There's no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. Don't you like those, those big statements? No one, no one, no one. Ever, ever, ever. Really, no one? Well, maybe in David's case for a moment. The psalmist, though, when he complains, he never stays in a complaining mode. Have you noticed that? There's always resolution brought to the complaint. There's always resolution brought in prayer to the troubled soul. And how does the psalmist do that? By reminding himself of one thing. God is faithful. Such as in Psalm 142, after he gives his bitter complaint, he prays. Give heed to my cry. I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors. They're too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. What is that? That's just another way to say God is faithful. He's not going to leave me here. He's going to meet my need. There's many other Psalms like that. Just to read the the heading, Psalm 102. Psalm 102, this is the theme of that Psalm. It is a prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint to the Lord. We will complain, I get that. We will have frustrations. We will have moments when we're just discouraged with what's not happening around us, with what is happening inside of us, whatever it might be, we're gonna have those moments. And complaint always finds resolution in the faithfulness of God to handle and solve whatever it is that has brought us to our knees. I understand it. The counseling load can be a weight around shoulders that just sadden your soul. It's one of the things we have to come alongside those who do a lot of counseling because it can be so saddening to the soul to see what's going on. It's so sad. It brings anger to the heart when you see what sin is doing. You see people who have been caught up in the effects of sin for decades of that persistent sin and the impact is so overwhelmingly destructive. Do that for several hours a day, for several weeks out of the year. You, you'll have trouble sleeping at night if you do not resolve it in the faithfulness of God. I think of all the number of false and less than biblical, if not outright unbiblical voices that are breathing into the ears of the average church member. It's astounding. I understand. People will spend far more time listening to YouTube than to me. They'll spend time listening to more well-produced podcasts than my pitiful sermons. The flock will consume more internet experts than they consult their Bibles or commentaries. Yeah, and if you just think on that, you don't sleep at night. Unless you pivot. God is faithful to the flock. He's faithful to them. Paul prays with confidence in God's faithful. Faithfulness, not his capabilities. The shepherd who doesn't quit is the shepherd who prays for every individual member, rehearsing the truth that they belong to God, they don't belong to the shepherd. The shepherd prays redundantly, repeatedly for the same issues, for the same people, for years, reminding himself that God is the one who gave the life of his own son for the sheep. Do you think that any one of us could care for the sheep more than him? We haven't given up anything like he has for the flock. The shepherd has joy in the flock and peace about the flock and sleeps well at night through the hurricane force winds of trial that are battering against the lives of the flock because God is faithful, his faithful and his faithfulness is far higher than the force of the winds of trial that come against us. Paul didn't worry about false teachers. Do you know that? There was never a moment where he sat back and he had this fear and sinful worry about false teachers. 
he fought, he battled, he, he, he confronted, he did all of that, but he never worried about it. Why? God's faithful to the flock. He doesn't lose. Keep this in mind. God never loses one of his own. Not one. It does not matter what goes on. He will never lose even one. That's how you pray with confidence. I'm not saying we don't battle. We're going to battle. We have to confront. We have to deal with error. Sometimes there are errors. I've been in this long enough now. I'm seeing the same kind of errors that happened in the beginning of my ministry are coming around again. I'm like, I thought we dealt with this. Oh, there's young people now. Right? They, they weren't there 35 years ago. God's faithful. Pray with a confidence in God, God's faithfulness to the flock. Secondly, a second dynamic that comprises confident pastoral prayer. Pray with confidence in God producing obedience in the flock. This is, follows on the heels, so critical. Pray with confidence in God producing obedience in the flock. It's the last part of verse 4. It's not just that we have confidence in the Lord who is faithful concerning you, but we have confidence that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Again, it's in the Lord. It's not in the Thessalonians. He's really confident that in the Lord you're going to continue to obey what we've commanded. Did you notice that? What are, what are they going to do? They're going to obey what he commanded them. Does that sound heavy-handed? I mean, he's writing the letter. Is this like a little bit of, you know, a little backhand slap? I know you're going to do what I told you to do. Matter of fact, I'm confident in the Lord, like he's going to come get you if you don't. No, I really am confident in the Lord that you're going to, he's trying to encourage them. My confidence when I go to God in prayer for you, it's so high that you're going to keep obeying the Lord. Well, what, he, what had he commanded them? Well, this is actually in reference to what he had described back in chapter 2, verse 15. You can look back at that verse. So, brethren, stand firm, chapter 2, verse 15, and hold, notice this, this phrase, hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And you recall, these traditions are not optional applications of Scripture, the traditions that Paul refers to here are what's called the New Testament mystery. It's, it's the fleshing out of the rest of the New Testament. It's the New Testament scriptures. That's the traditions. It's not commentary on the scriptures by theologians beyond the apostles. No, it's the revelation that came through the apostles and the prophets revealing the rest of the New Testament. It's not the application of truth from some Christians in some other part of the world. That's not the traditions. It's the scriptures themselves. It's what Paul had been constantly teaching them. Back in chapter 2, verse 5, he refers to it. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. I was giving you this truth. What he taught them was divinely authoritative. It wasn't his opinion. It was divinely authoritative. In fact, he's going to tell them, look at chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you. So he's about to drop some commands. In fact, he'll, he'll go on. Verse 10 is an example of that command. Even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Now that's a pretty heavy command. Verse 12, such persons who don't want to obey the commands, we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. Can you imagine the elbows being thrown in that church on that, that morning when they heard this? Verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. That's strong. Verse 15 is helpful. Don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So he's going to drop some commands here. He gave them a lot of instruction we saw in the first letter. 
over and over instructing, instructing. This was New Testament authoritative instruction that was given to them that they didn't have an option whether to, you say, well, with all of that, how is he really confident? Because he has to tell them to do, oh, I'm confident in the Lord that he will produce this kind of obedience in you. Isn't that interesting? A pastor pleads, he's straightforward, he's firm, he is patient, he commands with the authority of God in the scripture and at the end of the day he says, I'm confident that God will do that work of obedience in your heart. Every pastor is giving out biblical instruction in every sermon Every counseling session, you're opening the Bible and you're saying, here's how to apply the word of God to this situation. Most conversations you have with members of the church and you're walking through issues, an elder is is coming to bring the scripture to bear. That's their job. It's what they do. It's what they're called to do. Titus 1 says we're to to be able to handle the word, to contradict what's false, to apply what's true. That's the role of a shepherd. We're not just here to inform. Information has a point to it. Information has an end to it. And the end is the application of that truth. When Jesus gave the great commission in Matthew 28. What did he say in verse 20? You make disciples by teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. That's the role we have in discipleship. Accurately explaining the meaning of the scripture, correctly instilling how the intention of the scripture is to be followed, it is to be obeyed. Why? Because it is the will of God for us and the will of God for us is what is most wise. It's life for all of us to obey the scripture. That's life to us. But we all know our sinful bent, don't we? We all know our sinful bent. We all know our inconsistent tendencies and the prideful penchant to hear what someone authoritatively says, and we bow up with resistance to them. It's our sinful knee-jerk reaction to doubt, to resist authoritative voices other than our own, isn't it? We do that. If someone tells you, you need to do this, you're like, who are you? What role do you have in my life? Who says you can say that to me? Well, I, I, wanna, I just want you to know that's the cloud over a lot of consciences among shepherds. They live with the flock. They pour themselves into the flock. They instruct the flock. They've spent hours to try to correctly understand the scriptures themselves so they can teach the congregation what the scriptures say and help them to apply the word. And we can spend countless hours talking with and working with people and we take two steps forward and then three steps back. We plead and we see progress from people who we aren't quite sure if they're really going to stay with this, if they're going to hang with it all. Or we hear, after all those hours and all that instruction, we hear, yeah, behind the scenes, they're really not listening to a thing you said. Well, that can be frustrating. It's not fun watching a dog return to its vomit, is it? When there's such a refreshing, healthy, biblical meal that they could feast on. It's disheartening to see people follow lifestyles that are are not biblically driven. They're just fueled by weaker, smaller personal convictions. We also know what happens when you command obedience. We know what happens when you encourage compliance to the word. It breeds rejection. It does. You ever thought as a parent, am I being too overbearing and I'm pushing them away? You've thought that, haven't you? In your instruction, you've wondered about that because they're they're not listening to you. And we have been warned, 2 Timothy 4, it warns us when we reprove and we rebuke and we exhort, even with great patience, even with great instruction, they will want to have their ears tickled and they will accumulate for themselves teachers after their own desires and they will turn aside their ears 
two myths away from the truth. Which means, if you're the one teaching the truth, they will turn away from you. That is a promise too in the Bible. Now shout hallelujah. But you know what elevates you above that? When you see the consequences of sin long enough, you start hating those consequences more and more and more. And so they can reject you, but you've got to, you've got to tell them the truth because you know what's coming. Experience in ministry, it just throws logs on the fire of hatred for sin because you get enough of the heartbreak that comes from seeing people not listen to the truth and you, you'll be rejected for sure but you're like, I know what's coming. That makes pastors want to quit. Shepherds who don't quit are those who actually trust the Lord with the obedience of the flock. They plead, they pour, they invest and they rest their soul it's up to God because I know sin is only overcome by the sovereign activity of God to shape the heart so that they will hear the word and accept it as God's word and not mine. I mean, who is it that's going to convince the heart that Jesus is actually the wisdom of God in comparison to human philosophy and worldly wisdom like Colossians talks about? Who's going to do that? Who's actually going to say that that book, that old ancient book is more wise than everything that so-called science and philosophy is turning up today. Who's, who's actually going to convince somebody? That is nothing other than the work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? And by the way, there's an accountability for shepherds to do that no matter if they're accepted or rejected. You remember 2 Timothy 4 starts out with accountability. You have to preach the word in season and out of season in front of the God who is coming to judge the living and the dead. And in light of his soon coming appearing, you had better preach the word because you see what's at stake in the souls of the people. How's the shepherd sleep at night? I trust God with the obedience of the flock, not myself. We plead, pray, teach, weep, cry with the flock and trust God with their obedience. One final dynamic that comprises confident prayer. It's in verse five. Pray with confidence in God's leading the flock. In God's leading the flock. This is hard for so-called leaders to do. Oh, there's classes, there's books. There's all kinds of stuff on leadership. And you can get whole degrees in leadership. I've got a whole shelf full of books on leadership. I keep reading them. For some reason, I keep reading them. At the end of the day, God's the leader of his people. Doesn't mean we don't, we're not supposed to lead and direct. We do. But you have to pray with confidence that God will lead the flock. Now, verse 4 was a kind of indirect reference to prayer because he has confidence in the Lord. That's saying he is in prayer. But we find the direct reference to prayer and actually the content of his prayer requests in verse 5. You see it, may the Lord direct your hearts. That's the language of prayer. Now, there's two prayer requests that he has for the flock. Do you see them? First, is to pray confidently that God will lead the flock to live in God's love. This is interesting. Of all the things that he could ask, pray confidently that God will lead the flock to live in God's love. May the Lord direct. That word direct, only used a few times in the New Testament here, in 1 Thessalonians 3.11 also, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. It's just a word for leadership. Used in Luke 179, it's the only other place in the New Testament talking about the Messiah coming to guide our feet, to lead our feet in the way of peace. But the Old Testament actually uses this word in a very important prayer 
from David for Israel. In 1 Chronicles 29, 18, there is a prayer that David prays for Israel. And he says in verse 18, 1 Chronicles 29, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. What's he doing when he says Abraham, Isaac, Israel? He's rehearsing God's faithfulness. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and direct their heart to you. That prayer is likely in the back of Paul's mind or maybe in the forefront of his mind to say, this is what I'm praying for you before the Lord, church in Thessalonica. I'm praying that God will direct your heart into his own love. Now you would think that Paul might here refer to, I pray that God will direct your heart to obey. That's how I pray many times. Just, I'm praying that you do what I say. I know what I'm talking about. I've spent a lot of time on this. I've got degrees, people. (laughs) It's not what he prays. He didn't pray for them to, I'm praying that God will direct your heart into the love of God. The focus of Paul's prayer is the heart of the Thessalonians, the inner person, the command center for everything that is done, said, or thought in a person's life is the heart. You sometimes hear people talking about, should I follow my head, should I follow my heart? Well, the Bible doesn't really distinguish those from one another. When the Bible talks about the heart, it includes the head. It includes the emotions, it includes the will. It's, it's the whole of the inner person, the soul or the spirit. That's the heart. I mean, we, we sometimes we're, we pray about people just getting all fired up about Jesus, motivated to follow Jesus. And sometimes we can design our church services to be motivational, to jazz us up, to follow the Lord. I remember hearing the testimony of someone saying, yeah, I went to a church like that many, many times. I just went and I felt so motivated, so fired up, so ready. And I left and I thought, now what am I supposed to do now? I was eager. I just didn't know what to do. No, we're not, we're not praying just to get you fired up. We're concerned about your hearts. That's not just the intellect, but it includes the intellect. It's what you think. It's what you know to be true that leads you to what you feel. It's all involved. That's a shepherd's role. They address the intellect, but they address everything that shapes the inclination of a person's life. Back in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 17, Paul prayed that God would comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, it was God who examines the heart. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 13, Paul prayed that God would establish their hearts without blame in holiness before God at the coming of Jesus. The great concern that Paul had for any Christian was their heart their inner person. What did he want to see their hearts? Where did he want to see them go? Directed into the love of God. The love of God. Think about this. I want your heart to be led into the kind of love that comes from God. That's how this is phrased. The kind of love that actually comes from God. This is not Paul praying for God to love them but for these Thessalonians to demonstrate to others the kind of love that can only come from God. He wants their hearts to be directed into the sort of love that can only come from God. Now we know that God is kind to all in many ways. We call that, theologians call it the love of benevolence. He he desires to do good for everyone. He wants the best for everyone. That's God's love of benevolence. He wants that for anyone and everyone. There's also what theologians call God's beneficence. Spell that on your own. It means that God actually does show good to everyone. He causes it to rain on the 
the righteous and the unrighteous. The sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. So he, has, he shows good love to everyone in some ways. But then the theologians also talk about God's love of complacency. And that's not laziness. That's how we use the word. But that word can also mean satisfaction. It's God's love of satisfaction. Not smugness, but gratified love. And what does that mean? It's a particular kind of love that he is satisfied with in his son, You see the love of God toward the Son in the most astounding way. And he doesn't love anyone like he loves the Son. This is my beloved Son. In him is all my pleasure. That's a pretty profound statement. His love is satisfied in the Son. And therefore, if you are in the Son, you have that particular kind of love that God shows to the Son. What Paul is praying for here is that the hearts of the Thessalonians would be led into the kind of love that comes from God that is unique and specific towards those who are his. It's similar to the way Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, verse 17, when he prayed that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You want to have the fullness of God? You have to comprehend the massive nature of the specific, even the restricted love of God for those who are in Christ. And Paul is praying that you would show that kind of love from your heart, the kind of love that can only come from God toward others, that you would live in that kind of love. Why would he do that? Why emphasize that here? Why not just obey? What, What would really drive you to go to a sinning brother or sister in Christ knowing that they might reject you. They might not like you. They might spread things about you that aren't true and that are going to attack your character. Why would you go to them and talk to them? Well, what has the love of God shown us? What are you most concerned about? You love them by being concerned for their soul. And they're standing in front of God. You love them this way by giving yourself so that others will see the kindness of God in Christ through you. You love others through a personal humility based on the reality that God has loved you. You're patient with others as they struggle with sin because you see how patient the love of God has been toward you. I mean, he's about to say, you got to go talk to some people. That's what verses six and following, we're about to hit into some hard sections. You're going to have to say some things to people that are really hard. And you need to do this. May God direct your heart into his own love as you say these things. You know what? I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that there is nothing that will infuse a congregation with more vibrancy and spiritual zeal than people sacrificing themselves for the ultimate spiritual good of others. Using your possessions, your wealth, your home, your food, your time, your personality, your circumstances to invest in the God-centered well-being of each other. And yep, that might mean meeting some tangible needs because if you see your brother and sister in need and you tell them, I hope it all works out, how does the love of God reside in you? If you see your brother or sister tripping up over sinful things that are leading them down a road of sanctification that doesn't make them actually holy in Christ and you say, oh, I'm just... I'm too scared to say anything. I know how this is going to go. And you know what? You might be right. Aren't you glad God didn't love you that way? 
If you avoid investing your time into the lives of others to read the word and talk about its use and the details of their life, then, then really what kind of love is that? The Gentiles do better. Didn't Jesus say that? If you can just greet those who love you, what do you have that's better than the Gentiles, the pagan world? But when I hear of us loving each other, hard times and good times, meeting needs, coming along, staying, not getting too offended that we just bolt and go somewhere else. Because listen, there's, there's many other churches that'll just take you in a heartbeat. You can get upset, you can run, you can go. Because someone stepped on you, they hurt your feelings. And by the way, any church you go to, you're going to get your feelings hurt. It's just going to happen. It's what we sinful people do to each other. We don't like plan for it, or hopefully not. It's going to happen. So you can run off somewhere or you can say, no, listen, I made a covenant commitment to each other here. That's what membership is all about. I said, I'm going to live out the Christian life with this, this group. And I'm committed to them. That's what membership is. It's a commitment. Don't get tripped up over the word. It's just a commitment that you're making to live out the Christian life with each other. So you don't bolt. And when you hear of that kind of activity going on, you experience that kind of love in your own life. When I experience that in my own life, that's joy. That's joy. You pray that they'll be led into the love of God. It's the second prayer request and we'll finish with this. Pray confidently that God will lead the flock to persevere in Christ's steadfastness. To persevere in Christ's steadfastness. That's the second request in verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts into the steadfastness of Christ. Not, not just your steps, not just your life, but your heart. How you think and what you feel and what you desire and what you choose to do. Your heart into the steadiness the stability of Christ. And we've talked through this a lot in the past because it's a frequent theme in the New Testament. This is praying that God will lead the flock into stability of faith, a confidence in Christ that keeps them walking in Christ, persevering and not quitting. Now I know that perseverance uses the tool of human activity in each other's lives. What I mean by that is something like Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 to 13 where you're, you're actually encouraging one another day after day as long as it's called today lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, right? You're, you're involving yourself to exhort, to encourage, to walk beside. God uses the tool of human involvement in people's life to keep them in the faith. But at the end of the day, the softened heart from the urging of fellow believers, that is God's work. That's not our work. It's not our work. And we pray for that. In fact, when, when you see someone who's actually battling sin because they know that God's way is better, God's love is deeper, and they have a yearning for God that's greater than their, that sugar-coated taste of sin that's in their mouth, and they say, no, I've got I to pursue something healthier than this, God's way and I see him battling that's the heart being driven towards steadfastness did you know that because they're fighting the person who says I, I give up I'm quitting I'm, I'm done with this this is too hard this is too heavy I don't want any more of this I'm going somewhere else that's not stability is it when you see the distraught soul reaching out for help that is God at work in them to seek steadfastness. You're praying for God to lead the flock into whatever's going to cause them to be strong and unmovable, unconquerable, undefeated by sin. You're praying that God will use the right people, the necessary circumstances that will direct their hearts into what will bring about stability in Christ. Stability that comes from Jesus. That's the idea. Well, think about Jesus. What kind of stability did he have? Think about how Christ demonstrated resiliency in his earthly life. How did he do it? Opposition? Friends who failed him? People who used him? Lies? Slander? Selfish ambition around him? Jealous rejection? 
He did everything the Father asked him to do. In the midst of all that, he had his Judas, he had his Gethsemane, he had his Calvary, he had men of little faith around him who he poured himself into constantly and he never failed. He stayed firm, he never quit, he accomplished all his purpose. That steadfastness you're praying, God will direct the flock into that. Because he knows if you stand firm in the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 3.8, if you stand in firm in the Lord, we really live. That's a shepherd's heart. I really live. I'm so happy in the ministry. I don't want to quit if you stand firm. That's what keeps me going. It is. I have seen enough sin and its consequences. And I'm just telling you, it comes all the time. I think the fall season is one of the hardest in a pastor's life. You know why? I, I don't know what it is, but it's like everybody pushes pause on problems in the summer because they've got vacations and stuff. And then they push play again in the fall. And it's like, oh, I forgot I had this problem. Matter of fact, it got worse over the summer because I didn't deal with it. And it all comes out. But if you live firm, we really live. You see here, the shepherd's prayer is not really about himself, is it? No, it's, it's not about his acceptance. It's not about his own self-preservation. It's not about his own well-being, about his success or how people view him. It's about the spiritual well-being of the flock. Because he knows he's going to be held accountable for their well-being. So what else am I going to pray for? <laughs> I'm going to pray that God does what he's going to hold me accountable to do. There's a grief in it. There's difficulty for sure. Listen, flock, you do know Hebrews 13, 17. If you don't, I'm going to read it to you. Okay, listen to it carefully. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. You say, well, that's a self-serving sermon. Yep. <laughs> Everything I said, though, you feel that in discipling relationships, don't you? I know some of you who've been involved in just sitting down with another believer to counsel over issues of sin and everything that I've just said here applies there doesn't it how many of you have thought this way over your children I mean what else is parenting that's what this is how do you pray how do you pray for those that you're discipling you're in a Titus 2 group you're in a Iron Men group you're in personal discipleship with other people you're in a growth group with others and and they keep struggling with the same things. What are you praying? How are you talking with them? How do you lay your head down at night? Parents, are they ever going to get it? How do you lay your head down at night? Do you trust God? Do you have confidence in God? Do you just quit parenting? You can't resign from parenting, can you? Maybe there's a legal way to do that. I, I don't find it. No, you, you keep going. Do you find yourself praying with confidence or discouragement? That'll tell you what you think about God. Right? Yes. Let's pray with confidence together now. Lord, we pray that we would entrust each other and the spiritual well-being of one another into your very all capable hands you've called us to be involved in one another because we are the body of Christ and we're all connected to one another because of who Christ is and our relationship to him you've gifted us in unique ways and so that we can invest in each other through those uniquenesses Lord we pray that you'd make that work effective 
and effective we know means that you would bring us home to glory. You'll make us like Jesus Christ. You'll cause us to be stable and resilient until the return of Jesus when we live in him without sin. We long for that day, but we also know that until that day, we, we have to be dependent on you for each other. I pray for all of the elders of our church that as they invest themselves into the lives of the flock that they won't be discouraged. They won't be like this pastor who looked at all of the challenges of the responsibilities and thought it best to quit. Infuse in all of our leaders a confidence that they find in you because you're faithful you'll produce the obedience necessary. You will lead your people to see and live in your love and to experience your steadfastness. I pray that would be the resounding confidence that resides among us all for each other. And that when we, when we see someone falling, we would go to them because we're confident in what you're going to do. We don't know how long it will take or what the path will look like, but we're confident. You won't lose one. We trust you with that. I pray for those who are outside of Christ that you would grip their hearts to show them how much they need the body of Christ, how much they need this kind of love and encouragement and help because they cannot overcome their sin without the people of God living out the truth of God. So Lord, would you draw unbelieving hearts to you through even this, this sermon, this message, these verses of scripture. Cause them to yearn for this kind of life and to turn from sin and see that Christ alone is sufficient to make them acceptable before you. Let them come running to Christ. We trust you with all these things and look forward to the ways in which you work it out among us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.